0: Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and today I am thrilled to introduce you to Stephen Little, the founder and managing partner of Zero Limits Ventures. Stephen accumulates value growth and very high exit multiples for his clients, but his entrepreneurial journey started at a very young age. Stephen, that was not my typical introduction, but I already told you I get really excited and just keep on going. I want to hear your story from your mouth, but you sold your first company at age 15 for more than six figures?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I did.
0: (laughs) What type of company was it? I mean, because my first job was 11 or 12 on a paper route, and it wasn't even my paper, so I can't even imagine. What did you do?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's a funny story. I mean, I, you know, I was like any other 13-year-old. I was trundling around under my dad's feet one Saturday morning, and you know, he'd had enough of me getting in his way, so he finally said, well, go cut the grass. There's a lawnmower there. Now, I'd never cut the grass before, so I was like, oh, this is a strange request. Okay, you know, I'll give it a try. So I figured out how to start the lawnmower and I started cutting the grass. And no lie, I got like, you know, three passes through, and I was like, whoa, this sucks. I don't want to do this, <laughs> this is horrible. So, <laughs> bugs and, you know. Yeah.
1: So
2: I, I went to a neighbor, got him to cut the grass. He finished that up. And in the meantime, I went, you know, to a couple of other houses just to see, you know, would they, would anybody pay me to cut the grass? And, and, uh, you know, one thing led to another, I would, you know, I'd sell the grass cutting job for eight bucks. I'd pay that kid five bucks. I'd keep three bucks. And that seemed to scale pretty well. So I kept doing that Saturday after Saturday. And, then uh, eventually, you know, started doing it uh, two days, three days, four days a week, ride through my neighborhood on the bicycle. And, you know, I kept accumulating new projects and we did a good job. So neighbors would say, hey, who cuts your grass? Oh, "That little kid down the road there. And uh, long story short, I accumulated a lot of, of yards and bought more equipment and hired more people. And, you know, it grew into a pretty significant enterprise.
0: Oh my gosh! Did you employ most of your class?
2: No, actually, these were older people. It's funny, you know. I'd run to go from job to job on my bicycle uh, during the week, to make sure everybody was doing what they were supposed to do, and that you know, when you were supposed to be a Mrs. Smith, you were a Mrs. Smith, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, most of the guys working for me at that point were, you know, older guys in their twenties, thirties, sometimes even older than that. You know, it's uh, they hang out by the gas station. It was near my house and I'd go by and hire them. And then they became regular employees for me. It's funny because we'd be on a job. I'd be there supervising and somebody would walk up from the neighborhood. Hey, we want to talk to you about cutting our grass. And they'd point to me that you got to talk to the kid on the bicycle.
0: Oh, my gosh.
2: (laughs) So, you know, I mean, it just kept going. And, you know, the real story here and the significance of it is that, one Saturday, I was going through my regular process of, you know, checking back with, hey, Ms. Smith, you know, we'll cut the grass tomorrow. But, you know, August in Pennsylvania, the grass doesn't grow that fast. And I started to hear people say, well, that's all right. Give it a couple weeks. Come back, you know, week after next. It's, you know, fine. It looks good. And that happened five times in one day. I had about, at the time, I had about 30 yards. And uh, I thought, wow, this, if this keeps going you know, I'm going to lose half my money. You know, this is, this is not good.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> so so I came up with the idea of uh, offering them a summer, a semi-annual and an annual lawn care contract. And, you know, what I put in there is I, you know, cut the grass in the summer. Of course, I swept the walk and everything. So it was all nice and neat. You know, I would hit, tr- uh, trim their hedges. I'd you know, if a storm came, I'd come by and clean up all the sticks and debris. And in the winter, I'd shovel the walk. You know, I'd you know, and then you know, like that, right? Just sort of keep the place looking nice. I wasn't gonna do any heavy landscaping, but I'll keep your yard looking tidy. And everybody was like, "Ah, that's a great idea." I mean, if for one you know low rate of twenty-four dollars a month, I get this squared away. That's nice, you know. And uh, it, you know, different fees for different durations and so forth. But the net of it all out is, um, uh, it turned out that at the end of the day, uh, I kept all those contracts in a loose leaf binder back in my day. When you went to school, you you have these loose leaf blinders with uh blue cloth covers you could write on. Yeah. I wrote, wrote on mine in black magic marker, Steve's big book of business. <laughs> and, uh, I kept all these contracts in there and, you know, by the end of it, there were well over a hundred of them in there. And, uh, uh, not really knowing the significance of that yet, my dad came home one night and said, Hey, I've been transferred. We're moving. And I said, uh, Hey, you know, well, what do I do with my business? And I understand. He thought I was just out cutting the neighbor's yard, right? He didn't know that I had a whole warehouse full of equipment and had 35 people working for me. and Well, like your that.
0: dad did not know that you had a warehouse of equipment.
2: Nah, he's a busy man. You know, I mean, you know, it's just come home to school and take off on your bicycle he thinks I'm playing baseball when I'm out supervising jobs you know whatever whatever, but Steve, how
0: do you get a warehouse as a kid
2: well as a neighbor I mean it's up at the end of the neighborhood the guy had a big ass garage that we wasn't using I said hey can I rent that from you and put my equipment in it oh I love it you know and you paid
0: him so there was never any question dad didn't get involved oh my gosh amazing
2: no big deal. <laughs> right? So, I mean, really, it, at the time, it just didn't seem like that big a deal. It seemed like, yeah, you know, it was a good thing to do with my time, right? Right. And um, so, you know, he said, uh, I, I don't think they'll mind if, if you, you know, can't cut your grass anymore or cut their grass anymore. And I said, well, I don't think you really understand that. So I, I brought the book out and showed it to him. And, you know, he's leafing through it. About halfway through, he realizes it sort of dawns on him what he's looking at. And he looks up, he goes, You have all these contracts? You have all these projects? I said, Yeah. He goes, How do you do it all? I said, I got a bunch of people working for me. (laughs) He says, How many people? I said, 30 something, 32, 35, somewhere in there. Sometimes more, sometimes less, you know. We get it done. (laughs) He's like, Well, you know, show me your bank book. I said, Bring in my savings I didn't even have a checking account, I had a savings account. We had a lot of money in it, and, you know, he looked at it, and he said, my God, son, you know, I had no idea this was going on. He goes, I wish I could help you. I'm an engineer. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to tell you what to do with this. It's you got to tell these people that they have to cancel the contract, I guess. I said, nah, it has got to be a better way. I mean, that's just, that just doesn't make any sense. I worked too hard to get it here. Right. So right around then, uh, a lot of these now significant commercial lawn care companies were really getting traction in the market. I mean, they'd been around a while, but they were really like lawn doctor, you know, whatever. And, uh, there were two of them in the area. And I said, well, look, this Saturday, why don't you drive me into town? And I would go in and, you know, talk to those guys, see if they're interested in these contracts or the business or whatever. So that's a good idea. So I went in and talked to the first guy and, he had the very same reaction my dad did as he looked, you know, leaped through the book. He thought, "Wow, finally figured out what he was looking at." Now, to him, you understand that he's got pesticides and fertilizers and all kinds of other things to sell these people. So, to him, that book of contracts was worth, you
1: know, Gold. I don't
2: know, maybe millions of dollars, yeah. right? Who knows? So he offered me a hundred eighty-seven five for it, and I thought, "Wow, that's a lot of money, right?" <laughs> I said, okay. Well, you know, let me think on that. And you know, I need to go talk to my lawyer, like I had a lawyer. Right. I didn't have a lawyer, <laughs> but, you know, but it sounded good, right? Uh-huh. And uh, I laughed and went out to the car. And my dad said, "What happened?" I said, "Well, you offered me a lot of money, you know." And he said, "How much?" I told him, and you know, he's sort of in complete, you know, complete shock. It's like, well, that's you know, that's three times as much as I make. Son. I was just I mean,
0: about to ask you, yeah,
2: you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? He said, "Well, your school will be paid for, right. <laughs> right? So, so he said, Wow, well, that's great. Let's go home and celebrate." You know, I said, "No, no, no. Let's drive down the street to the other guy, see what he'll give me for it." You know, he said, "Well, that's a good idea." <laughs> right? So, that guy offered me a, a bit more, a little less than two hundred and fifty thousand, and and so we you know went home and called a friend who knew an attorney, knew how to draw up the paperwork and we went back that next uh, next monday and he signed it and wrote us a big check and and you know that was a success but the thing that i learned and while i couldn't articulate it this way at that time because i was 15 was that that business had a very specific value driver it wasn't me it wasn't the equipment you know it was the contract the fact that i had that book of contracts is what made the business interesting to all those prospective buyers, because it meant that all they had to do was contact those people, describe themselves as the new owners, we're gonna to continue to do the work just as Steve did, but we've got other things that we can offer you, right? And so it turned out to be pure gold for them, and you know, pretty handsome sum for me, and I learned something about value drivers, that understanding what drives the value of a business Is a critically important thing. And while I couldn't articulate that lesson that way, I used the same basic principle over and over and over again throughout my career. You know, I built uh, six very successful software companies, sold them for, you know, over a hundred million dollars a piece. I then went to work with top tier venture farms in the Bay Area and did six more acquisitions for them, all of them in, you know, north of a hundred million. And uh, always use the same basic approach is find the value drivers, find out what the highest paying buyer values the most and do more of that and do less of the other stuff. And you'll build a more valuable, better business. Right. And that's just the way I ran it for for 40 some odd years and then uh, retired pretty young and had a couple kids. And, you know, the rest is history.
0: Wow. You've got me thinking now, because maybe I'm thinking about this from the wrong direction but I didn't even know what the value was of my business for the first five years. Yeah. Okay, to be to be more honest, longer than five years. I thought my value was the service that we were providing and not actually what they got as a result of the service we were providing. Yeah. So interesting. Maybe you can explain a little bit more I mean, I understand the value driver. They love Steve's big blue Brooklyn business. business. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. But right like when when you were working with all these other companies and, and determining the value drivers, what types of things were those businesses looking at? Yeah. And, and what should entrepreneurs be looking at as the value drivers in their business?
2: Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. And it, the thing to understand about the value of a business is that every prospective buyer is going to value your business differently. Because they're motivation for buying you is unique to them. Let me give you a simple oversimplified example. Let's say there's a buyer out there who's interested in buying your company because of your customers, your customer acquisition capabilities, your customer retention capabilities, the the fact that you have the relationship you have with the market. What they're actually saying without saying so is that they feel like they have great product they want to buy a market by buying your company, right? That makes a certain amount of sense. They want to sell their product to your customers, okay? And it's easier for them to do that if they own the business. And let's say that in this example, those guys are willing to pay 10 times uh, net earnings for your business, right? Just a round number. Uh, so if your business does 2 million in net earnings, they're willing to pay 20 million for your business, right? because they want those customers. Now, they value all the other things, but the principal motivation is customer and customer acquisition, right? There's another buyer out there who values you for other reasons. You might have some intellectual property, you might have uh, an innovative uh, business process, you might have a brand or trademarks or people, That they want, right? So their motivation is less about customer acquisition and more about other aspects of your business. And let's say they're willing to pay eight times earnings for that. So you have one company that will pay you ten times, one company will pay you eight times, right? So which is the larger value driver? In this illustration, the customer acquisition component of your business is the higher value driver. You follow me?
0: Yeah, I follow you. Hmm. So
2: if I had a hundred thousand dollars to invest in your business and that were the condition your business was in, where would I want you to put the hundred thousand dollars?
0: Into more customer acquisition.
2: More customer acquisition because I'm gonna get a ten times return on my hundred K. If you put it into brand or trademark or the other stuff, I'm only gonna get an eight times return. Right. So just knowing that, just knowing that there those two buyers exist and that they value your business the way they value it, allows me to make a better business decision, right?
0: Right, absolutely.
2: Now, so this is true, whether I want to sell my business or not, you see? Mm -hmm. So what I tell people is the reason I tell people to start their business with an exit strategy, and most businesses, most business owners say, well, I'm not ready to sell yet. Yeah, but the exit strategy is not about the exit it's about the strategy. So when you think about it, if you didn't know, as you just said, if you don't know what drives the value of your business, then how do you make any decisions about what to invest in? Oh, I,
0: I made thousands of poor decisions.
2: Sure, most do. Yeah, because it's sort of a wet the finger, put it in the air. Well, do I want to mm-hmm. get more salespeople, or do I want to get more build more product, or do I want to raise money, or you know, what do I want to? Or do, do I, I do? want to try
0: to do all of all of that and then end up doing nothing? Yeah, yeah right,
2: yeah. right, or or none of it's good or whatever, right? Yeah. So. So this is the thing is that I feel like starting a business with an exit strategy in mind is not about setting up for acquisition as much as it is about having the right strategy to grow value, right? And then having that decision metric matrix in place so that you can continue to grow. Now, that doesn't mean this can't be changed. It doesn't mean it's not dynamic. It doesn't mean that you can't ever invest in something that doesn't grow value. You can still have all of those things available to you. It's just important to know when you're investing in something that grows value and when you're investing in something that doesn't grow value, right? It's just an important element of knowing how to grow your business, right?
0: I feel like this is a dumb question, Steve, but I don't feel like there is a dumb question, but I'm I'm still in that mentality. (laughs) But how do we know what drives value? I mean, I understand Mm. customer acquisition is really important. Without customers, there is no revenue. I mean- no, there just is no revenue. But I understand so, intellectual property as well.
2: Yeah. So, the, so here's an interesting thing. Uh, when I first start speaking with new business owners, no matter how long they've been in business, but they're new to, my, to me, um, I ask two questions. Uh, the first question I ask is, what's your exit strategy? I typically get two, one of two answers. The first one is, we don't have one, which is at least honest. Right? And the second one is, we're going to grow it and someone's going to buy us, which is interesting, but not a strategy. Right? The next question I ask is the one you just asked, which is, well, what, do you know what grows the value of your business? What I typically get is a question that sounds something like, uh, what do you mean? Like revenue and earnings? Profit? Is that what you mean? Well, That's what we are all sort of taught, if you will, or it's sort of intuited that the more revenue, the more earnings I produce, the more valuable my business is, which is fundamentally not true, right? But we all run our businesses as if that's the holy grail. And I would say, as evidence of this, you look at companies like Zappos or the previous iteration of, if you will, of Snapchat before they collapsed, right? There's a timing component in here as well. But, you know, two years ago, you could use Snapchat as an illustration to say, well, there's a company that's worth $28 billion with no revenue and no earnings. So it can't be revenue and earnings that drive value, right? Well, now they're almost bankrupt, but that's a timing issue, not a a value driver issue, right? Because there's things called negative value drivers, too which sucked the value out of your business, and in their case, the negative value driver was this thing called Instagram, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? But that's a different story. But you can see that the basic elements are true. So how do you find out what drives the value of your business? Well, it's best if you can use a third party to do the analysis, but if you can't, you just do some creative brainstorming, like who would buy you and why would they buy you? Right. And you, you don't leave any area unturned. Don't make any assumptions that it has to be somebody in your business. Right. So if you look at the list of prospective buyers, they could include competitors. They could include other companies that serve the same market with a different kind of solution. They want to expand their market to your solution. Could be companies who either compete with you or don't compete with you, but they want your customers. Right. I used them as an example earlier. Could be a company who wants uh, intellectual property or a company who wants to access some very effective business process or or, uh, business discipline that you have. Could be a trademark, could be a brand, so forth. So you, you create sort of that list of things and then you can do the research on that and ascertain what would be of interest to a prospective buyer. Now, you're not going to get a precise answer, but you're going to get a relative answer. And the relative answer is going to sound like, well, based on my company selling the products that we sell, serving the market that we serve, you know, these areas are the most value rich over time. So those would be the areas to invest.
1: Yeah. For instance,
2: a, a lot of internet companies uh, strategically defer EBITDA earnings in exchange for
0: growth.
2: EBITDA? Right, uh, earnings before taxes, depreciation. So net earnings, right, so profitability. So they they typically defer that, or can defer that in order to get more growth. So they basically, any money they bring in, they pour back into the business for growth. Because in their business, growth is the key value driver. Mm. Right, so the faster they grow, doesn't matter if they're making money or not. I mean, this was Amazon's strategy for the first 10 years of its existence.
0: Right. Is that how long it took them to make money?
2: Uh, yeah, a long yeah, time. Wow. Now, 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 but look at the value that was created. Right. Right? I mean, so to this day, they don't turn a tremendously high volume of profit, right? It's good margin, but it's not like, you know, astonishing margin. But the value of the business is so astonishingly high, right, for this reason, Right. And so when you look at a situation like Zappos, this one was a big puzzle for me in the beginning. Here you have a company, Amazon, bought Zappos for a billion dollars. Zappos was a couple years old. Now, here's the thing. If you looked at it from the surface lens, Zappos didn't sell any products and Amazon couldn't or probably didn't already sell, right? If you bought something from Zappos, chances are you have previously bought something from Amazon, so it's not like they had any customers that they probably didn't already have. So what on earth made Zappos worth a billion dollars to Amazon, right? Are you going to answer that for us? (laughs) I will. (laughs) Thank you. So when you dig a little deeper, what you discover is that the timing of that transaction occurred about the time Amazon made a pretty dramatic strategic shift within their organization. Up to that point, they'd been a relatively monolithic company, run in a relatively monolithic way. So, you know, strategy came from the top down, execution occurred top down. But they recognized that they wanted to move to a distributed business model. They wanted the prime centers, they wanted warehouses all over the all over the world frankly but all over the country at least so that they could get you same day delivery and then they could start developing their drone strategy and all the things we read about in the in the you know the tech magazines and whatnot and in order to do that they needed a more autonomous culture they needed to empower the external elements of their organization to be, make creative, innovative decisions and bring those innovations back to the company and share those innovations company-wide. And what they needed was that culture of innovative creativity, which Zappos had in spades. Zappos was created for the express purpose of establishing that culture. So it was a perfect match. For Amazon to acquire Zappos, so they could integrate the Zappos culture within their own culture, and by doing that, empower the organization to deliver what's now ubiquitous shopping, right? I mean, at least in my case, I we don't even go to the store anymore. Why, why bother? I can get everything I want on Amazon same day?
0: Oh my okay. gosh, yeah. So, yeah, right? going out shopping, including the grocery. Drives me crazy.
2: Yep. if I can do yeah. it online,
0: I'm going to do it online. You're going to
2: do it exactly. That's yep. right. As long as you get the same quality, the same timing, same pr- you know competitive pricing, whatever. It's you know you're just not. It's that's the world we're living in. Now I realize there are people who still like to go to the mall, and that's that's all well and good. But that's for a different reason. That's not actually. The buying of whatever you're looking for. There's a there's a shopping experience they're looking for, and that's a legitimate motivator that's going to keep some malls around, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, from a practical reality, what now exists in that infrastructure, by virtue in part of that decision, that billion dollar decision, is you know tens, if not hundreds, of billions of dollars worth of value, right? By virtue of the shift that it, it allowed to occur in the Amazon organization. Yeah. So there is a key where the value driver was culture. Right. Right? Wow. Yeah. Follow?
0: Yes, I definitely follow. And you you had me thinking I just want to back up a little bit because I know you know the small business owners and solopreneurs who are listening maybe like wait, what? More mm-hmm. more clients doesn't mean more value and I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. listeners who are who are questioning that I will tell you that for my company it was exactly the opposite, because until I got the rest of the systems in place, my business actually did worse the more clients we got, because I couldn't handle it, and I was mm-hmm. trying to do it all myself.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And so you really want to understand this aspect of your business, and, and here's an example. It's something that gets missed a lot. As far as I know, we're the only banker in the industry that really looks here. When we work with a company, we do something called a valuation growth assessment, which is a very deep dive, an analysis of the company, and we're looking for specific value drivers. We're looking at things that exist in the business that are constraining its value, like a lack of documentation or, or a lack of competitive information or a lack of planning or documentation or, or you know financial rigor, right? So a lot of companies aren't rigorous enough with their bookkeeping and so forth. So those are all constraints to value. The things that exist that are keeping it from being as valuable as it could be. Then there are things that exist in the business that are unleveraged enhancement potential. Uh, they can It's another broad spectrum of things. Uh, we had one company that uh, we tripled the value of their company just by identifying uh, some internal characteristics that they weren't they weren't recognizing at all and just by bringing those to the surface and making them brand present they dramatically increase the value of the business and then there are things that are in the market that are market value drivers things can we position the company more effectively in a more valuable market segment we had a company not long ago was in the trucking industry we doubled its value in less than a year by shifting it into the energy logistics industry. Same company did the same thing every day. They just weren't trucking. They were now energy logistics, right? Other than that, nothing else changed, right? Higher value market derived more value for the company. So there's a lot of things like that that are available to people, right? So, um, understanding this part of your business, it, you know, is a vital element of it. Um, and it allows you to make, you know, better investment decisions and better strategic decisions and so forth. And, you know, to your point, it's not always the things on the surface that matter. It's really understanding the market for what you're building. A lot of business owners start their business and they they sort of treat it as an income source. And it's important that you see that, of course, it's important to have income. You got to pay your bills, right? Obviously. But if you're thinking of your business that way, then you're making an enormously significant mistake. You're building an asset and the value of that asset must grow over time or it will die. That's a fact, right? And I can tell you, and I don't need to tell you, but I can tell anybody who wants to hear me that, you know, if that's, if your outlook on your business is about the income you derive from it, then stop now, go get a job because having a job is one a heck of a lot easier than building a business, right? So, if you're in business, you wanna start looking at your business as an asset. And mm-hmm. it's an asset that's gonna grow in value as long as you continue to understand how to grow value in your business, right? And I like to say it this way, whether you think you wanna exit or not isn't the issue. There is going to be an exit. Whether you take your company public, whether you sell your company, whether you give your company to your kids, or whether you keel over dead at your desk one day, there's going to be an exit. And what's critical is that the value of that asset has been maximized before that exit, right? Because that's what you're building is the asset, and Steve, it's usually. I'm so glad
0: you said that because this is a positive productivity podcast. And when you ask, or when you said that you asked them, and they usually have one of two answers, I was waiting for death because. <laughs> My exit plan up until this conversation has been death or dementia.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's going to happen one way or the right. other, right? Right. So, you know, and what's interesting is that when you think through that, so let's just, you know, let's play with that idea, right? Let's say death is the exit, right? I built, a, I don't know, I built a plumbing business and I got offices in, you know, the the mid-Atlantic region or something, right? I got... Lots of plumbers out there, and we're taking care of... It's a great business, right? Healthy business, you know? I like to say healthy businesses, people get vacations and, you know, paid holidays, right? That kind of thing. Right. Well, say so this, we got, right? Now, my job as the owner is not just to employ those people and just to derive my income from that business. I'm also increasing the value of that business so that when I either get tired and retire or hand it over to my my son or my daughter, that it's as valuable an asset as I can possibly deliver. Keep in mind that building a business is probably the biggest asset a person will ever have. It's gonna grow in value far faster and far more significantly than owning real estate, unless you have a real estate business, I guess. Right. But owning a house, right? so really recognizing this part is, is critically important. You want that to be, you know, legacy value. You know, I mean, these are the, these are the stories we hear, you know, you talk to the, you know, I, I had a, a friend of mine years ago ran a construction company and he ended up willing the company to me because his sons didn't want it, you know, and, I mean, it was tragic from that standpoint. It was wonderful for me, frankly, because it was a wonderfully successful business that, that he did pass away, had a heart attack. He passed away. I got the business. I ran it for another three years, did really well with it, enjoyed it a lot. Then I sold it to a much larger enterprise for the value assets that were available in that business. Now, what I did was a little bit unusual. I went back to those sons and gave them a fair amount of the money that I'd collected. But, you know, that was not just you know, a transfer of wealth. It was a legacy that went with that, right? This guy had spent his entire life building this business. He died building this business, right? So that's something to think about. When you look at your business, look through the lens of its asset contribution to your life. You know, I don't want to get off too far off in a spiritual realm here, but something that's really significant about humans is we're particularly good at categorizing things. Right? Our minds are set up this way. We, we actually use it in our language. We have something we call a work life. and we have something we call a family life. and we have something we call a love life and a sports life and a whatever. Right? And it's as if these are separate things. And it's a convenience that our subconscious mind delivers to us so that we can do things like, I'm going to borrow time from my family life, invest it in my work life, i.e., I'm going to work late tonight, honey, OK,
0: I don't know a thing about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Because. Right. And, and we actually have the belief that it's going to pay a dividend mm-hmm. to the family life. Mm-hmm. That somehow doing this is going to make my family life better. Wow. Which is insane
1: mm-hmm. because
2: that's not only not what happens. Right. It ends up costing us the quality of our family life while we're pursuing this business life or this work life, right? So the thing to understand about this is you really only have one life, right? I mean, that's the truth of it. It You have one. one. So what I try to encourage people to do is live one life, right? Don't try to borrow from one to another. You know, recognize that, hey, if you own a business, you're never going to get everything done. The list is too big. Forget about it. It's never going to be all done. So don't try to do it all. Know that at this time of day, you now have committed to spend time with your family. So stop this and start that. And if you'll structure your day that way, you have a productivity program. If you'll structure your day in a way that literally you just live into this schedule of commitments it becomes much more enjoyable, much more rewarding, much more fulfilling, right? I have a program called Target Your Triumphs, which is specifically designed to help people do this. It's just, you know, map it all out, put it in your calendar. Then all you have to do is do what's on the calendar.
0: Oh, my gosh, Steve. I just blocked out my calendar this past Sunday. Like, I have color coding. There you go. For every hour of work, like 9 to 5 work day during the week, I know this time is client time. This time is yep. content creation time or internal. You know, I, yep. I'm trying not to work in. I have a team of seven, so I'm trying not yep. to work in anymore, but on. And yep. This is the first week. We're, we're recording this on a Friday, listeners. This is the first week that, besides all the appointments that had already been scheduled before I set that up, when people ask if they can get on my calendar, this is the first week in six plus years that I have said yes, but not until next week because if it yeah. was content creation time I actually said no. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, I don't have time for you. It's not your it, allotted spot here.
2: It becomes so much easier. Right? Now if you also go back in and map in time with your your spouse, or your significant other, time with your your kids, time with your friends, time with the exercise, time with the Oh, it's all the there. Beating. I did that you know, too. Right. So if you then all you have to do is what's there. Yeah. Right, and what you yep. get is the life you want.
0: Okay, yep. okay. <laughs> right. that is you all know? there too. But I have to admit, I was exhausted, so some of the you know the workout time was redelegated to sleep. But that's okay, you know. And and well, I feel that's, just, like that's all,
2: all that all that is is a shift. So yep. I mean, you start you start with one iteration, mm-hmm. you live it, you go. Okay, well, I was a little too aggressive on this part. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, okay, I'm going to adjust this. I'm going to give me a little more space here. and... And, you know, realize that I'm going to need more sleep. So I'm going to, you know, expand that or whatever. But eventually you get to a place where there is literally no stress, no pressure, no strain, no, no, you know, it's just, it's right there in front of me. I just have to do what's there. And what I get is the outcome I want my whole life, right? not just my business, right?
0: Steve, I just got back from a two-day coaching intensive. And one of the four-month goals that I established for my team and I is to actually wrap up our first round of standard operating procedures. So yeah. Like, and, yeah. And you just, like, I knew it was important before hopping on the, the line with you today, but now I can see just how important that is because now I can be away again, you know, traveling at a conference or coaching or on vacation or sick for that matter, and the SOPs are created And the second part of that aha came with people asking me what my sales team looks like. Up until, well, this very second, it's been me, myself, and I. Yeah. But you just gave me the big aha of why. If the company dies with me because I'm not around to make sales, then what was the whole point?
2: Then what was the point? (laughs) Exactly right. Right. So you've made this, this, you've begun the shift. You mentioned earlier, I've been doing a lot more working on than working in. That's the first uh, thought shift to actually growing a successful enterprise. And as yes, you're right, most solopreneurs are stuck in their business, right? They're delivering whatever it is they're selling. That You have to move out of that. You have to start working on your business more and more and less and less in, which means somebody has to be in the business, right? It can't be you. All right, so that's an element of that. That then increases the order of complexity with operating your business, which then creates a time strain, right? So as part and parcel of the growth that you're on, and hallelujah, you're in a coaching program and a, a mentoring program, then you know, you're able to leverage the experience and knowledge of others so that you can see that, oh, I see how this works. I have to then block my day apart. So then all I have to do is execute my plan plan You work, work your plan. That's a win, right? Then, you know, it just becomes a lot easier because you can actually architect the life you want to live. Now, here's the other thing that you didn't mention, is those SOPs that you're creating, key value driver.
0: I was thinking about that when you were talking about it.
2: It's an absolute key value driver because yeah. think about it. What's the buyer going to have to do?
0: know how to run the
2: business right, so, right. Yeah. and they that means they either keep you around, right. which is not consistent with why you want to sell the business mm-hmm. or they keep you around long enough to learn all of those things and they document them.
1: Mm.
2: which costs them money. that means you're that much less valuable to them because you cost them, right they had to go pay the money to do that. Well, if you've done it, Right? Then it's, it's simple. You just, here's the SOP for this. Here's the SOP for that. Here's the document for this. This is the procedure we use for, for, uh, you know, bookkeeping rigor. Here's the, you know, we, we evaluate these things every 45 days. Like, all of that stuff is done. You now have diminished the cost of ownership and the perceived cost of risk to the buyer, which makes you more valuable. Right? Overriding principle here, in any transaction of any type, but particularly in the type of a, of a company acquisition, the higher the perceived risk of ownership, the lower the price the buyer is willing to pay. Yes. The lower the, the risk of perceived ownership, the higher the price he's willing to pay for this very reason, right? Wait. So if you have, anytime you have employees, if you have procedures or policies or employee retention activities, Lower risk, higher value, right? Yeah. So we we're talking about other value drivers. I mean, one of the ones that gets missed is mission orientation.
1: Mm.
2: People don't even think about the value of this. Right. But if you think through the, what I just said about risk, and you recognize that a company that is centered on a mission not not a bolt-on not the pink ribbon on the chicken box that's not what i'm talking about here i'm talking about tom shoes bomba socks right those kinds of things where the mission is the reason and the company is formed around the mission you can have a wildly successful very profitable company delivering on a mission whether that's housing the homeless in haiti or given shoes to the shoeless in, in, you know, Zimbabwe or whatever. Right? So it doesn't matter what the mission is. What matters is that there is one and it's central to the theme of the business. This is an enormously significant value driver because number one, it creates internal connection. People are there for a cause that's bigger than themselves. That means they're likely to stay. A lot of times they're likely to stay and even stay for less money in some cases. So you increase the quality of the employee pool in your business and oftentimes uh, limit the expense or, or at least reduce the overall expense of that. Another reason, the largest consumer population ever on the planet is entering or has entered the discretionary income consumer space, the millennials, and they care about whether or not your business is doing anything good in the world. They don't want to buy from companies that aren't doing anything Mm -hmm. good in the world. They want to buy from companies that are doing good in the world. And they will make that choice every single time. So you cannot ignore just like, you know, in 1946, you could not ignore the reality of the baby boomers, right? Couldn't right. do it. Right. Right. And in 1946, those people were teenagers. And what did they want? They wanted sexy cars to drive. So what did Lee Icocca do? He created the Mustang. Right. And made it the number one selling car in the history of the automotive uh, industry, right? Now, move, move the clock forward 20 years. What are those kids doing? Those boomers are now having little Boomlets and they need something to haul those boomlets around in, (laughs) he created the entire industry of minivans, right? Yeah, Because he was looking at where that market was. So look at where this millennial Gen Z market is, and what you see is the largest pool of discretionary income or discretionary spending capacity in the history of the world, and they care about the mission you're on. Mission orientation is an extremely significant value driver. Right. So it needs to be in your messaging. It needs to be in who you define yourself as a company, as a a solopreneur or otherwise. What are you doing in the world? Why are you doing it? Right. One of the things that you witnessed, Kim, is that the New Media Summit, 90 percent of the reaction that occurred when I gave my presentation was because of what I do with the success that I've earned. Right. Because I support 600 AIDS orphans in Africa. It's because I support the Pachamama Alliance that's trying to save the rainforest from the oil companies. It's because I support Oceans Unite cleaning up the oceans. It's because I support Beneath the Waves, which is saving the shark population, a critical population of of fish in the ocean. Right. It's because of those things that people said, hey, I want to talk to this guy. (laughs) Right. Right. So don't forget That there's a reason you started your business. It wasn't for the income, right? There Mm. was another reason. And that's the reason you need to focus that energy on, because that's the thing that's going to drive the highest returns for you over time and make it the most rewarding.
0: Well, do you want to hear something crazy? I mean, good crazy. I did start my business for income, but then I burnt myself out. And, sure after, and after I recovered from the burnout, I realized, oh, my gosh, I need to get this in order. And then I re- also realized there are a lot more entrepreneurs who are burnt out, anxious, depressed, suicidal, just like yeah. I am or was. You know, I'm not yeah. suicidal people, but I do still get anxious sometimes. Sure. So it's sort of our, I don't know if ironic is the right word. We're working on our SOPs right now, but our intention is to go out and support other entrepreneurs and small business owners to create Great. theirs. So that they yeah. can start getting out of their business and back into their life. Or, Absolutely you know, right. I know we just said there's only one life, but you all know what I am well, what I mean. So our mission is now to alleviate the anxiety and and depression of small business owners by helping them get yeah. systems and support set up because that is my passion. I don't want to see anybody else fall into the same or if they're in it already, I want them to get out of it. And if they're not in it, I don't want them to fall into that deep, dark pit. But the yeah. the way that I bring my, like any new team members in is they, they become the show notes writers and the editors for the podcast so that they can actually hear and experience the passion here. And if that doesn't yeah. resonate, okay, there's some people who just can't write very well, but I still love them and they'll, they'll have another yeah. role in the company. But sure. if it doesn't resonate, then this isn't the place. Yeah, but my team yeah, is no, long-standing because, just like you said, they're passionate about what I'm doing, just like I am.
2: Yes, that's the point right there. Yeah. That's a perfect illustration, right? And you are doing something very significant in the world, right? You're you're basically saving entrepreneurs from themselves. Yes, right? So, right, which is very powerful, very compelling, and very valuable, right? So that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about here. So when you talk about you asked about value drivers earlier. You know, look at all of these areas. I mean, social social intelligence is another one that gets overlooked. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about likes and follows.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm talking about establishing deep relationships with your customers online, right? So it used to be years ago when I was building my first company, we didn't have the Internet. There was no such thing as email. There were no websites, Right. The way you sold is you called on the phone. (laughs) There was no voicemail. Or you You rode your bike
0: around checking on uh, your
2: neighbors. You know, you you made an appointment and you went and you met with someone. You talked to them about Mm -hmm. what they need and what you do and you created a match. And and usually in that process, you developed a relationship. You developed rapport, regard, respect. You you recognize that, hey, there's a picture of a Mustang over there. You must like Mustangs, you know, or whatever it was. It was about the relationship, right? Well, now we have all of this digital communications, which is designed to facilitate business growth and and so on. And what often gets forgotten, it's not that it's not available in the digital communication. It's that it doesn't get used to its available capacity for relationship building. You can develop a close personal relationship with an individual that's interested in your company and your product through a digital medium, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn or even Twitter for that matter. Right? One of the companies that we recently represented was principally valued at the accelerated value. They were we accelerated their valuation by over three hundred percent, and we did it by leveraging the number of five star communications they had with the, and ranking they had with their customers, but it wasn't the stars. It was the nature of the interaction. It was deeply personal. They had personal relationships with tens of thousands of customers through social media that were intensely valuable to the client retention of the company. And it made the company worth 200% more in the market. So, you know, there's a value driver most people don't think about, right?
0: If I weren't married, I could give you a big kiss right now. <laughs> you've, you've made me feel so much better about, like, the rest of our four-month plan because I haven't even gotten into it. but And I won't get into it today. But I, I want to back up a little bit in your story, if you don't mind, for a second. Sure. Steve, what happened after you sold the company, the lawn care company? Did you go to college?
2: I, oh, I did go to college. It was some years after that, right? Mm -hmm. I did other things in the interim. But interesting, in college, uh, the very first day, I was, you know, a new freshman on a new campus, didn't really know anybody, you know, sort of that whole experience. And there was a a welcoming bash up at the the athletic center. And so I was walking up to the athletic center and, and this big beer truck, you know, was driving by on its way to Fraternity Row. So I didn't, you know, I'm a relatively lazy guy. So I jumped up on the running board and was, you know, got her hitched a ride with the guy. And I was talking to him through the window in his door, just so talking about I said, so, so who owns the distributorship here? He goes, nobody it hasn't been, hasn't been claimed. I was like, well, what has to happen in order to get that? He handed me a clipboard. He said, fill out the form. So I filled out this form, this two page form, signed it. Handed it to him. He said, congratulations, you now own the distributorship for the entire campus. Oh, my gosh. Right? So wow. I could order trucks of beer right, <laughs> the, right, and have them delivered to the fraternities or to the athletic center or to the baseball diamonds or whatever. And, you know, I got paid for the beer, right?
0: Oh, my heaven.
2: And then, you know, I developed a number of marketing strategies there where I figured out how I could sell the same truck more than one time in a night and that kind of thing. But, you know, it turned out to be a great business in college. I mean, I became really popular. I'm sure.
0: First day of freshman year on campus and you start another company.
2: Listeners, I did
0: not know that. When I asked that question, I had no idea.
2: No, no, of course not. Well, and then, so that pattern just sort of continues throughout my life, really. I mean, it's not. Then eventually, I started building like you know real companies, mm-hmm. right? I, I mentioned the construction company, and I'd started a cabinet company. And uh, that fellow I was talking to you about that willed his company to me. He hired me because he had a a project that needed custom cabinetry, and he couldn't find anybody that did that work anymore, but I had a shop that did that, so he hired us to come in and do that job, and then we became close friends, and he used me on all of his projects, and one thing led to another. He was the only guy I was supporting after a while. I couldn't couldn't take any other work, because he kept me so busy, and then he had a heart attack, died, and gave me his company, so I had both of those companies, and then I grew that into a commercial enterprise, I don't know if you were around when uh, we used to have regular filling stations, right? And then we turned all the filling stations into filling station convenience stores. Uh, and, you know, one of the big contracts I got was uh, British Petroleum hired me to convert all of their gas stations into convenience store gas stations. And once I had that contract, here's another case where I actually never did any of that work. I had the contract to do the work, and I sold the company for lots of money, because a larger commercial enterprise wanted that contract, right? Wow. Uh, rather than, I mean, I looked at it as what a colossal pain in the ass this is going to be, flying people all over the country to renovate gas stations. You know, ugh. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's, it's easier to sell the whole thing off to a bigger enterprise that already had people in all those cities, right? So that worked out well.
0: Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the difference between 7-Eleven and a standalone gas station.
2: There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> if, and I know millennials or younger might be thinking,
1: what?
2: What, yeah. what are you talking about? Right. Well, I was actually, there used to be people who came out and pumped the gas for you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. yep. so, Wait, did you windshield and all that? You know? <laughs> yeah. My
0: dad would drive another five minutes to 10 minutes just to go to the self-serve station.
2: Oh my, yeah. Well, there was a phase of that, right? Because it yep. saved them ten cents or something, yeah. Yep. But uh, so anyway, it's a, it's a pattern. I mean, you know, it's just what I do. I mean, I've been doing this my whole life, and and selling, building, and selling, understanding the value of the business, and finding the right buyer for that, and and uh, you know, I think there's a lot that I can share and teach, and that's what I do now, of course, for a living, and and um, you know, I uh, started in the software world and. Uh, learned some interesting things about building software companies and, and, you know, did some things there that I, that, uh, were interesting. I had a company that, uh, I actually sold the company before I started it, which was, uh, something new that I hadn't thought of previously. But, uh, what I found out is that there was this large company who, uh, their budget had been constrained by their board such that they were no longer allowed to develop code in-house. They couldn't do any internal R&D, which meant they could only grow their product through acquisition. <laughs> but I knew that in the, the project that they had on the slate, by virtue of my relationship with the chief technology officer, I knew that they didn't have any way to get what they needed. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, you give me the specifications for the product, I'll build a company that builds that product and when we reach these milestones, you buy my company. Mm. Right? And it worked. <laughs> right? so, you know, because they were allowed to invest through acquisition, but they weren't allowed to invest in R&D. Wow. Right?
0: Wow. Wow. I, and I'm, anyway. I'm thinking about you as a child, and I'll need to take a couple more minutes of your time. But I, you as a child having your warehouse, I mean, these days, you know, I just want to make sure that my kids are staying on the safe YouTube side. <laughs> you know, forget the well, warehouse. You know,
2: you know, it's funny. You know, my friends, many of my friends have kids that are that age. You know, 12, 11 to sixteen. And you know, I and we, I'll be visiting. We're we'll hanging out. You know, at the having a barbecue or something, and I'll see them running around and their video games and all this stuff. And. I just sort of shake my head, and I think, man, there must have been something wrong with me when I was 13. (laughs) Because, oh, man. I mean, uh, a 15-year-old was whining to his dad about something the other day, and his dad looks at me. He goes, will you tell him what you were doing when you were 15?
0: (laughs) No kidding. Will you please come talk to my 16-year-old who just turned 16? can't even get him to do his freaking chores.
1: Yeah, right, like
0: I have. Right, he yeah. does not know yet, but his computer has been unplugged from the Internet, and his Wi-Fi <laughs> will not work when he gets home.
1: <laughs>
0: and that's going to be like World War, uh, not World War Three. It's going to be like the Great Depression.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah it'll, be, it'll be rough for him for sure. It's going to be like, <laughs>
0: really? I was working four, four to five days a week after school when I was your age.
2: Yeah, exactly. It yeah. was the way it was. It's not that way now. I yeah. sure.
0: No, definitely not. <laughs> Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. I actually have one last question at sure. L2. What are you most excited about in the next 90 days?
2: Well, I've um, I've started a, a new initiative at Zero Limits Ventures. It's it really off. It's coming out of a book I just recently read. It's called the Play Bigger Initiative. And we're, I'm pushing my entire team to another level. We wanna, I want to. I want to play bigger. Understand that I envision my role in the world as really re- replicating myself. I want, I want other people to enjoy the success that I've enjoyed or better so that they can contribute to the causes they care about in an increased way. So, you know, it's a giving forward concept. And, you know, I, I've done a lot and I, I help people accomplish those things. You know, for instance, It's an absolute requirement to work with us. You must have a mission. If you don't have a mission, you have to go get one before we'll work with you. And, you know, I really want people to understand that, look, this whole thing about entrepreneurship is about the contributions you can make on the planet, you know, whether it's energetically or physically or, you know, whatever it is. You have to have an orientation that there's something bigger going on here. So I'm excited about the Play Bigger initiative inside ZLV because, you know, we're upping our game. We're really looking to, you know, uh, ignite a thousand suns, who ignite a thousand suns, who ignite a thousand suns, right? We want to get this out there and get it moving so that uh, we get more people that have more capacity to contribute more to the causes that need so much support in the world. So that's what I'm most excited about right now.
0: Play Bigger initiative. And you said that was based on a book that you just read. Play Bigger?
2: Yeah, called Play Bigger, right?
0: (laughs) You are not helping my Amazon cart right now. (laughs) I actually just bought, by accident, I bought two Dare to Lead books by Brene Brown because I was so excited I didn't realize I already had it in my cart once.
1: Oh, that's funny. Yeah.
0: And this morning I saw that she's now like number one on New York Times bestseller. And I was like, yep, that's I helped. I bought two. Yeah,
2: I contributed. Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. But hey, actually, it just occurred to me, listeners, I want to know what your biggest aha moment of this episode was, because I know that you all have a lot. And just for doing that, if you want, one of these two copies of Dare to Lead that I, I do expect you to go leave a comment in the show notes, which you can find. And that was totally unintentional, Steve. I did not do it for that purpose. That's great. It's great. Yeah. Which you can find at com forward slash pp534. And you also find show notes, links to where you can find Steve online and a full transcription when we catch up with transcriptions. But, Steve, where can people find you online and connect?
2: Yeah. Yeah, so uh, if you go, I put a, a page up for people for a podcast like this. It's zerolimitsventures.com, dot com, all you know, lowercase, all spelled out. Zero, z e r o, limitsventures dot com forward slash access a c c e s s, and they'll find that there's a, a downloadable book there called the Valuation Growth Playbook. It walks you through, you know, how to identify key value drivers in your business. There's a video up there that provides uh, contextual training on value drivers. Nexus strategies covers a lot of what I uh, talked about today in, in much more detail. Unfortunately, it's an hour, but most people enjoy it. Right? And then there's a way that you can schedule an hour with me to spend time on a uh, valuation growth uh, strategy session for your business.
0: You've got me rethinking already, you know, every single investment I make into my business, is it going to be a value driver? Yeah. Like the SOPs, do do I really need to learn how to create a Facebook challenge right now? Or would the SO, I, I think I know my answer, the SOPs are a higher value driver at this point.
2: That's a good point. Yeah. I think the Facebook content is is a value driver, but relative to the overall impact on your business the SOPs are probably a higher driver.
0: Absolutely. Steve, mind-blowing. Thank you so much. I know you've given such tremendous value to me and also to the listeners. So thank you so much for coming on today. And you are invited back anytime you want to come.
2: Great, anytime. I'd be happy to do it. Thank yeah. you for your time. And and I look forward to talking to you again in the future.
0: Yes, thank you so much. Steve, do you have a last piece of parting advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? Oh,
2: <laughs> I don't. Uh, <laughs> Well, you got me. You know, I think, um, I think probably the one thing I'd say that's sort of outside of what we've already talked about is, you know, really find a way to put in practice the things that fuel your most creative energy. You know, I was just reading an article this morning about, you know, why most successful, highly successful, you know, billionaire class business owners uh meditate, right? And it's it's really because we all deal with things that constrain us and limit us, their fears, there's you know limiting beliefs, there's all kinds of decisions we've made in our lives as children that we carry forward as if they're truths. And they're not truths. They're just limiting beliefs that we, we made decisions about. And, you know, you can make a different decision and have a different experience. So I encourage people to use the the skills and use the, the capacities that are out there, the, the resources that are out there to, you know, really learn how to get in touch with that in yourself. Use meditation as a daily practice and, and, you know, get clear about what you're up to in this world. Why are you here? What are you trying to accomplish? What's your purpose? You know, all those kinds of questions. They all generate so much power and so much energy in what you do each day that uh, you're unstoppable.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast.